Well, we have had a wonderful Easter season here at Abundant Life, and it all culminated last week with the baptism of eight individuals, which was such a, a special thing and special time, and it's probably my favorite Sunday out of the whole year, and I have just been praising God all week for what happened here last Sunday. And now that we're through the Easter season, we're going to, as I mentioned um, during the announcements, we're going to head back to our sermon series on the book of Daniel. And we are going to basically pick up where we left off. And what we're going to be talking about, to, to, about today is about pride. And we've talked a little bit about pride so far in this sermon series but we're coming back to it today because our passage that Chase read addresses it. And I want to be clear, there is a good form of pride. There is a good form of pride, a noble form of pride. The Apostle Paul, he had it. Uh, for example, when he was looking at the churches that God used him to plant, he had that good sort of pride that stands back and looks at what God has done and has this attitude of gratitude for God's grace and, and how God's grace worked in the situation, right? Uh, similar to the healthy pride that Paul felt in regards to the churches that God allowed him to plant, we parents can have a healthy form of pride as well when it comes to our children. I felt the healthy, I hope so, Pride's a really, really tricky thing, right? I hope, and I, I have to give this disclaimer as well. I don't even like to talk about pride because there's always the danger that you're going to be prideful as you talk about pride. That somehow you ha you're in the know when it comes to pride because you have something to say about it. So it's like, God, as I preach this Sunday, please keep me out of this destructive pride in my own heart and mind. But anyways, I would like to believe, <laughs> probably the pride in my heart would like me to believe that I had a healthy view of Elijah getting baptized on Sunday, that I was rejoicing in what God is doing in his little heart, in his little mind, in his little soul, and that Oh my goodness, because of God's grace, I get to be a part of that, right? You know, it's nothing that, it's really God's work. So there is this healthy form of pride. I think we want to take pride in our work, right? We want to take pride in our work. We want to do a job well done for the glory of God as we recognize that it is God's grace that works inside of us, that wills and works inside of us to accomplish our work, as Philippians 2.13 tells us, right? Um. And so that's the good form of pride. It stands back and it admires what God has done and rejoices that he decided to use us despite all of our flaws and all of our shortcomings, right? But there's this bad form of pride that the Bible repeatedly addresses throughout you know, the pages of Scripture. And I think the reason why it continually addresses this destructive form of pride is because of its prevalence. The destructive form of pride, it is so prevalent, there is no human heart that has not been impacted by it. And so that's one of the reasons why the Bible continually addresses it. The second reason is because 
of this bad form of pride, its destructive power, it is so immense. Pride is the most destructive force in the world. It is the root behind all of the evils in the world. C.S. Lewis has said this, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis, he also observed, and this is in his book, Mere Christianity, which is just so amazing. He says, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. Another writer by the name of Josh Squires, he states this. Check this out. Pride is a prison that perpetuates anger, hurts, and foolishness while keeping at bay the restorative effects of conviction, humility, and reconciliation. So, the Bible addresses this destructive form of pride repeatedly because of its prevalence and because of its immense destructive power. And thirdly, because it's the vice we are most unconscious of in ourselves. It is the vice that we are least aware of in ourselves. Pride is a, is a funny thing. It's really easy to see in somebody else. It's extremely hard to detect in your own heart. And that's why the Bible repeatedly addresses it, because it has to be unmasked. And we need to be able to see that there is pride, especially in the deep, dark recesses of our hearts, right? And so... Our passage today, Daniel 4, it addresses this very thing, and we're going to talk about it again today, and we're also going to talk about it because God hates pride. Because of the things that I, that I said that pride does, and because it's so hard to detect, God hates pride. In fact, wise old King Solomon He said this in the book of Proverbs, that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Guess what made the top of the list? Pride. Pride made the top of the list of the seven things God hates. Pride. Um, (laughs) The NKJV says that God hates a proud look. The ESV says haughty eyes. But this is all talking about pride. Tim Challies, he writes this, haughty eyes are an arrogant man's windows to the world. From the lofty perch of his own superiority, he uses them to look down upon others. From his self-made pedestal, he fancies he can see with greater clarity than his creator. Nothing is more opposed to God than pride. And so let's talk about it. Let me pray. We're going to jump in and we'll see what God has for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that uh, you have given us good gifts that we have not earned, we do not deserve. The very fact that we're seated here at this church in this service, 
allowing being able to draw near to you and experience your presence and hear your word taught that has the power to transform us and the people around us and the city. It's all an act of sheer grace. Lord, you're the only one who can unmask the depth of pride in each of our hearts. And Lord, as we look at King Nebuchadnezzar and his issue, With pride and his uh, difficulty with pride, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us so that we would be humbled, so that we would be people that are marked by humility, that love you well and love the people around us well. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I think it's worth reading the passage again that Chase read. You know, I know for me, I, you know, it's, it's helpful when I prepare a sermon, I'm reading that passage you just multiple times and allowing it to really soak in. So I, I encourage you and challenge you to tune in to these verses. Daniel 4, 28 through 37 says this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, is, this, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. All right. So... The more I study and I learn about pride and the more that God is dealing with the pride that is alive and well in my own heart, the more that I've come to realize that at its core, pride is made up of these four things. Pride is a self-centeredness that wants to be in control 
It wants to be exalted above others. It takes credit for God's work, and it believes that God owes them. So, wants to be in control, wants to be exalted above others, takes credit for God's work, and believes that God owes them. So, let's look at the first one. Pride is a self-centeredness that wants to be in control. Pride wants to be in control because it believes that it knows best, right? Neb, as I like to call him, because saying Nebuchadnezzar over and over just wears out my, my tongue. Um, Neb, he, we got to remember that he was the most powerful man in the world. And I've said this to you before, but it puts it into perspective that he is arguably one of the top 20 most powerful people of all time. I mean, his power was crazy. He ruled over the entire known world in that in his day. I mean, the guy had so much power, and he liked making decisions independently. It's obvious. If you read the first four chapters of Daniel, he liked to be in charge. He didn't want to have to answer to no one. He didn't want to have to get approval. He didn't want to have to take a vote. He didn't want to be accountable to anyone, right? He wanted to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be in control, he wanted to have power, and he wanted to have dominion. He wanted to play God. Earlier this week, I was uh, uh, talking to a doctor friend of mine, and uh, he was talking to me, and he was expressing how he's just in a real rut. He's not exercising, um, he's struggling spiritually, and he was able to identify uh, to me that he doesn't believe, what came out is that he doesn't believe that he's fully surrendered his life completely to God. And I think we can all identify with him, right? Like, have we really handed over everything in our life to God? And when a person is struggling to really hand every facet of their life over to God, sometimes it helps that person to learn more about God's character and who he is and how much you can trust him, right? Others, however, need to see that why they're not handing everything over to God is because it's really a pride issue in their heart. That's the problem. Think about this. Anything but complete surrender to God and his will is an extremely prideful stance to take. Extremely prideful. Because what you're saying is you're saying to God, I'm not going to fully surrender every dimension of my life to you because I know better than you. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for the people in my life. I know what's best for the people in the world. God, I am sovereign. You are not. I trust myself more than I trust you, God. And I really believe that in time, my friend needs to see this. Now, I didn't tell him this when I was with him because I don't think he was ready to receive it. I listened, right? And I expressed empathy to him. I told him I would be praying for him. I checked up with him on Friday, and I, and I will continue to do that. 
But let me ask you this. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus with your sin in terms of you know that there's no way that you're going to make yourself right with God, that you have to trust in Jesus' sacrificial death in your place to take care, to blot out the sin so that you can have a relationship with God. But what I have found in my own life and as I talk with other Christians is that we make that commitment, but yet we still hold on to different aspects of our life that we don't surrender over to God. It could be our marriage. It could be our children. It could be our future. It could be our health. It could be our finances, you see. And so I asked you this morning, are you still trying to control some dimension of your life. In pride, are you saying, I know better than you, God, by not surrendering it? And maybe God's grace right now is enabling you to see that you've got a pride issue in your heart that needs to be dealt with. You don't seek God when it comes to your finances. You're not going to him and really thinking through how you spend your money. You're not going to God with your marriage. You're not praying with your wife. You're not praying with your husband. You're not, you know, seeking the Lord together and trusting him to really just make that as good as it possibly can be. You're just making decisions. At best, you're consulting God. We've talked about this, but he's not your boss, right? And you're just kind of winging it. Look. Your problem is deeper than just simply not being able to trust God. There's a good chance that there's a pride issue in your heart, and it needs to be unmasked. You need to see it for what it is. And you know what? Every time you sin, you know what you're saying to God? I know better than you. You know what, God? I'm going to lust right now because I know better than you. That's really where happiness is found. I'm a sin out of anger, right? I know better than you, God. I'm going to overspend. I'm going to overeat. You know, the list goes on. I know better than you, God. It takes pride to sin, doesn't it? So, I think when God enables us by his grace to see that our desire for control is really a pride issue, he can break us down to the place where we're able to say to God, wherever, whenever, however, I'm yours. Everything is yours. Every dimension of my life. Look, I know that we recoil when we think about praying this prayer, that anything prayer, because we trust, I don't think it's a question of whether we trust God will do what's best. We often struggle and we recoil with complete surrender because we wonder how painful God's best will be. Can I get an amen? Right? But anytime we find ourselves recoiling, we have to ask ourselves, how painful will our disobedience be? Not how painful God's best will be. How painful will our disobedience be? You see, the cost of following Jesus, while great, and I don't want to minimize it, 
is never as great as the cost of not following Jesus. And so anytime you feel yourself recoiling, you need to remind yourself of these things. All right, secondly, pride is a self-centeredness that wants to be exalted above others. Ian, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name, but I'll, I'll go with this. Do a good? I hope that's not his last name. He would have got picked on every day at school. In his commentary on Daniel, Daniel, he uh, writes this, and I, and I think this is hilarious because it's so true. Check it out. Don't you just hate some of those glowing family newsletters that you receive every year during the holiday season? You know the ones that run like this? It's been a great year for the lamplighters. Greg had been hoping for a promotion, but what a surprise when the CEO came to his desk and begged him to take over the company. The whole office chipped in and gave the family a week in Paris to celebrate. Was it that nice? Of course, uh, G, I'll call her Anne, has been... <laughs> it's probably a really simple name that I, I'm embarrassed if I spell to you. My pride is kicking in. Like, I don't want you to know that I can't read this word right now. Um, so Anne has been busy as well. You probably saw that, new, that news item about how she rescued a school bus full of children from a kidnapper, <laughs> armed with only a plastic comb. <laughs> nice to think, too, that the poem she wrote for last year's holiday letter will be chiseled into the wall of the Library of Congress. The twins did so well at the state tap dance championship that Spielberg is crafting a, a movie around them, while Greg Jr.'s science fair project was the topic of much excitement in the New England Journal of Medicine. Do you know anybody like the lamplighters? Do you know anybody like that? Every time you get together with them, it's all about what they're doing, what they're achieving, how great their kids are but they never really ask anything about you. They're just full of pride. They're happy that their life is better than yours. It's like a competition for them. Do a good says that when he gets letters like the lamplighters, he wants to take their perfect little family picture, set it on fire, and jump up and down on the ashes. <laughs> I want to read more of this guy's commentaries. Because usually a commentary doesn't read like this. I'm not laughing when I read a commentary, right? I was laughing out loud to myself. We all, don't we, when we get one of those family newsletters. But guess what? Do you know what this reveals in us? You guessed it, pride. Look, he goes on to say this. The problem is not simply the lamplighter's pride in their achievements. The Lord will, will, will deal with them or not as he sees fit. No, what my response to the letter reveals is the pride within my own heart. Pride inherently compares our achievements and rewards to those around us. It boasts if we have achieved greater accomplishments and recognition than our companions and sulks enviously if we have done less or seem to have been passed over. The lamplighter's letter make, makes me feel like a hopeless underachiever and so challenges my pride. 
you see the pride in our heart. We've talked about this too in the sermon series. It wants to push us, either make us do the comparison trap, right? And when we get in the comparison trap, it's going to either make us feel arrogant because we believe based on our assessment that we're doing better than the person we're comparing ourselves to, or it's going to make us feel all kinds of despair and envy because the person we're comparing to, comparing ourselves to is doing better than we are. Check out King Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking around his palace in verse 30, and he's saying, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar's walking around like, look, I ha- I've won the competition. I have the most toys, right? I am the winner. I am the master of the universe. He was arrogant, right? You see, a prideful heart wants to be in control, and it wants to be exalted above others, and if it's not, it starts wallowing in self-pity. It starts screaming out, it's not fair. Right? Number three, pride is a self-centeredness that takes credit for God's work. Tim Keller is the one who really helped me to see this, and I think it's fantastic. He calls it cosmic plagiarism. Cosmic plagiarism. So when we take credit for, for something that really is a gift of God, we become a cosmic plagiarist, right? So King Neb was definitely a cosmic plagiarist. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built for, the, for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Babylon was spectacular. I wish I could have seen it. Um, it, you know, it was just a spectacular city in the middle of Babylon was this 300-foot tower. Um, It's known, ancient Babylon was known for the hanging gardens that King Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife. This is like a a rendition based on what people imagine it to be on the screen. It was just like a huge city that was like this beautiful garden. Um, Yeah, so that, yeah, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens in Babylon. And it was surrounded by this this gate, this city wall that was wide enough. All around the city was this humongous wall that was wide enough that a uh, a, a chariot with four horses, there was enough room for that, that chariot with those four horses to turn around on the wall. Like, I mean, that would be a huge wall that went all around the city. And what Neb is saying is that, look, I am responsible for all of this. But you know what? He had very little to do with it when you think of it. All right, so first of all, King Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't responsible for being born into nobility. He wasn't even responsible for the fact that he became king of Babylon. Who was responsible for that? God was responsible for that. God set him up as king over Babylon. He wasn't responsible for the mind that God gave him to accomplish these large building projects that he completed. It was all a gift from God. In verse 425, look at what the major lesson is that King Nebuchadnezzar has to learn. This is the lesson that's repeated in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has to learn this, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, 
and gives it to whomever he chooses. God was the one responsible for all of Nebuchadnezzar's success. You know, due to the pride in our heart, our hearts want to take credit for God's gracious gifts in our life. And as Christians, even though we come to realize that it's God's grace that saves us from our sin, often we're blind to the fact that it's God's grace that is responsible for any good in our life at all. Tim Keller, he writes this. He says this. People at the top are eager to attribute their position to their own intellect, savvy, and hard work. The reality is much more complicated. Personal connections, family environment, and what appears to be plain luck determine how successful a person is. We are a product of three things, genetics, environment, and our personal choices. But two of these three factors we have no power over. We are not nearly as responsible for our success as our popular views of God and reality lead us to think. You see, the pride in our hearts wants us to believe that we're self-made, that the reason we've been so successful is because we're just, we're better than the people around us, right? We've worked harder than the other people around us. But what have you worked hard with? What have you worked hard with? The air God gave you moment by moment? The body God gave you, the intellect God gave you, the genetics God gave you, the opportunities God gave you, the connections God gave you, the upbringing that God gave you, the education God gave you. You didn't choose the country you were born into. You didn't choose the century you were born into. You didn't choose the social class you were born into. Most of the forces that make us who we are lie in the hand of God. And to drive this point home, what Keller did is he he used an extreme example. He writes this, if you had been born in a yurt, I had to look that up, it's like a tent, in is Magnolia, or Mongolia, sorry. (laughs) Mongolia. Is Magnolia even a place? I mean, it's a tree. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, too much fixer-upper. See what it's doing to my brain? It's just rewiring it. If you had been born in a yurt in outer Mongolia, instead of where you were, it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered how hard you worked or used your talents. You would have ended up poor and powerless. I'll never forget the first time that this truth really became real to me. Um, years, I was in college, and I was playing music with a guy who lives on the east side of Cleveland in, 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 a, in a very impoverished area, and I would go to his tra- house. I'd travel to his house. A large reason why I would make the trip to Cleveland is because he didn't have transportation to come and meet me anywhere. This guy was an extremely talented singer and uh, piano player, and so we were making music. We were writing songs together. And I remember getting to know his family, and I remember thinking, holy moly, this guy doesn't even have close to the opportunities that I have to be successful in life. I mean, the cards are stacked against this guy, just so much. And he was brilliant, and he was ultra-talented. His parents, were they lazy? Is that why they were poor? 
now, they both worked in the, at the airport, making minimum wage. Was my buddy lazy? No, he was, uh, he was in college um, at Cleveland State University studying to be a music education teacher, and he too worked at the airport. But they knew nobody of influence. They knew nobody that had any money. Their family members didn't have money because probably their family, you know, their, their descendants didn't, uh, or the people that came before them didn't have any money. And, you know, I was going to my buddy's house in Cleveland. I was driving the car that my great-grandmother gave, gave me. It was amazing. Dodge Aries, gray, <laughs> rocking it. Um, I was driving that. I was playing a guitar that my parents bought me. I was recording music at my house to take to him in Cleveland so we could continue to work on it on a computer that my great-grandmother uh, bought for me. Do you see a trend there? I was the favorite for sure. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, busted. Right in the middle of the sermon on pride. So true. Dang it. Right? I, I mean, I was, I was in grad school at the time. You know how I got to grad school? I went to grad school for free because I had connections to a person that... Uh, had connections at the university, and so they paid for my grad school. I had a graduate assistantship. I went and worked for them for a little bit, and they gave me a $700 stipend a month to, to have, and I got my grad school paid for free because of connections that I had. All because, hey, it was all grace, right? Can I take, if I, because I, I did well in school, can I take any credit for doing well in school? And I, I just think that we do not realize that God is way more responsible for any success that, that we have. Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that God hasn't given you? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Why be a cosmic plagiarist? Why take credit for God's work? Quit being a cosmic plagiarist. You've worked hard with God-given talent, genetics, relationships, resources, and we could go on and on. And look, you need to see this. If you don't realize... That all the good in your life is due to the sheer grace of God, you're going to be a miserable person. And I'll tell you why. You will have no gratitude in your heart. Think about it. When you're prosperous, what are you going to be saying to yourself? You'll be, you'll be saying and thinking that there is nothing that you have that you have not earned. And as a result, you're not going to be grateful. Everything you have, you're going to say, I worked hard for this. I deserve it. Right? That doesn't make you happy. I'm owed it. And when you feel entitled, when you feel entitled, you're not going to feel happy. And when your life is hard, if you don't realize all the good in your life is a sheer gift from God out of his rich mercy and grace, if, when life is hard, you're going to say, it's not fair that I should be in a poorer condition than those people. I deserve all the good things that they have. You're going to be a miserable person. 
We talked about in adult Sunday school, you remember that book, Why, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? You know what's wrong with that, that premise is that we, God owes us, that we're entitled, that, that we deserve good. And that's why people have a problem with why good things happen or bad things happen to, to good people. Because that's the mentality. It's this entitlement mentality. And that leads to the fourth and final point. Pride is a self-centeredness that believes God owes them. And that's what ultimately happened to Nebuchadnezzar. passage. He couldn't deal with life difficulties because he believed that he was entitled to good things. And so when bad things happened, he became so bitter and so angry at the things in his life that were difficult. On the other hand, if you understand that you do, do not deserve anything, that if what you deserve is hell, not God, but out of sheer grace, he has allowed you to excel, achieve, and have good things that he's responsible for, you're going to go through life with a constant ability to find contentment and joy because you're going to have an attitude of gratitude because you will see that everything in your life, as far as good things, is sheerly a gift that you don't deserve. And if you realize that everything is a gift... You're going to be happy. And when difficult things come to you, you know what you're going to be able to say? You know what? I deserve worse. I deserve worse than what I'm, what I'm dealing with. You, Christian, are always doing better than you deserve. You are always doing better than you deserve. So stop complaining. I got sick and tired of people complaining about the weather. Like, are you serious? Like, really? You're going to complain about it's a little bit colder than you would like it to be. All right. You keep living that way, you're going to be a miserable person. Because it's grace. It's grace that you can get up and walk out of, you know, your house into the cold. It's grace that you're not in the fires of hell. It's grace. Right? All of life is a gift. Pride doesn't want to see it that way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are broken people, and I am just a a train wreck on the inside a lot of the times. And I realize that um, this is a message for me. And although I wasn't complaining about the weather, I too complain about a lot of different things. Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would remove this pride out of our hearts that wants to be in control, that wants to be exalted above others, that wants to have it our way. Lord, we need your 
transforming grace. Only your grace can rescue us out of our pride. And if, it, if we could rescue ourselves out of our pride, then we would just be prideful that we rescued ourselves out of pride. So, Lord, we need you. Um, keep teaching us. Keep, tra- keep transforming us. Thank you, as Max Lucado says, that you love us just the way we are. But thank you that you love us too much to let us stay the way we are. May we be full of humility and so model and resemble uh, your son, Jesus. Amen.